I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Good Pods. It's a really amazing app where you can follow your smartest, funniest, most curious podcast junkie friends and other people you admire to see what podcasts they're listening to, and it's all by episode. So I know I have my own podcast, but even I find myself overwhelmed by how many episodes there are of other podcasts and what I should listen to next. So Good Pods is still in beta, and they're looking for testers who will give them honest feedback. So you can go to Good Pods on the App Store or Google Play and check out which podcast your friends are listening to. And by the way, go on there and show them that you're listening to my podcast. That would really be awesome. So anyway, Good Pods was founded by a friend I used to work with many moons ago in, I guess, 1999, which really ages me here. But anyway, JJ Ramberg and I used to work together at a big company called Idealab. If anybody heard of that, she was with the site called cooking.com and I was with Idealab. And now she started Good Pods, among many other endeavors that she's done. Um, and this she's done with her brother, Brad Ramberg, who was also at Idealab with me. So all comes full circle. So anyway, thank you to JJ and Brad and everybody uh, at Good Pods for sponsoring this episode and for making a new searchable listening tracking thing for podcasts, which is going to be super helpful in helping people find great podcasts, hopefully like mine. <laughs> Thank you. Therese Ann Fowler is the New York Times bestselling author of novels Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, and A Well-Behaved Woman. Her most recent novel is A Good Neighborhood. Raised in the Midwest, Therese moved to North Carolina, where she currently lives. She holds a BA in sociology, cultural anthropology, and an MFA in creative writing from North Carolina State University. Thank you for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs> I'm so glad to join you. Can you please tell listeners what A Good Neighborhood is about? Yeah, so A Good Neighborhood is a contemporary suburban drama that is really about the conflict between these two families, one black and one white. And the conflict initially arises over the fate of this damaged historic oak tree in the black family's backyard. But it gets really complicated by this developing romance between the two families' teenagers. And these two situations lead to consequences that none of them could have foreseen. Or me as the reader, by the way. <laughs> well, good. Did not That's see that coming. Did not That's see the ending coming. You wrote an interesting explanation at the beginning of the book. And you said, a good neighborhood is very different from the historical novels I'm known for. And to change course could be a career risk. Yet these characters and their intertwined fates, the story of their conflicts, and the fallout that ensues felt urgent to me. To write this, to write their story felt necessary, a kind of activism in our troubled and troubling times. So tell me more about this. Oh, well, as everybody in the book world is aware, because of the controversy that surrounded the publication of American Dirt, this is a fraught time for people who are mainly white authors who are writing stories about people of color. And this is not news, right? This didn't just start with American Dirt. It's something that has been ongoing. And because that's the case, because I knew I was taking on the possible subject of appropriation, was I going to be you know, held to a different standard than, say, a person of color writing this story? And and I want to stress that I think that the standards are correct, that people of color are, in most cases, right to be sensitive about the way that white authors have been, in some cases, appropriating their stories or just badly 
writing these stories and getting more attention than those people of color get for their books. All of that being the sort of the pool that we're swimming in right now made it so that I felt like I needed to address this head on in my author's note to help readers know that I'm mindful of those problems. I take them seriously and I wanted to make sure that I did what followed this this advice that I got from Zadie Smith, which was to write about whatever you want to write about, but just make sure you do your homework. So that's what that note is about. So was that like a frantic, I better write a note before this goes to print? No, not at all, because I didn't really expect there to be any particular controversy. You know, the timing of American Dirt coming so close to the timing of a Good Neighborhoods release makes this a front and center issue. Rather, the note was just me, like I said, being mindful of this being the situation and wanting to just address it in case people did have questions about what I had done and why I had done it. Most of the people who raise issues of appropriation are not telling white authors you can't write about these things. I think that message kind of comes later in the piling on, the sort of terrible vitriolic culture of Twitter and people who don't actually engage with the issues but just want to kind of get into the fight. But people who actually are thoughtful about these matters recognize that anybody ought to be able to write anything. It's just that you need to make sure that you don't do it badly. So when Zadie Smith said, make sure to do your homework, how did you do your homework for this book? I did a lot of research into, well, let's, I'll back up for a second and just say, there are five characters in this story whose points of view I take. And two of those characters are African-American. And so one of the things that I knew I needed to make sure I did was not to just presume that I could represent those voices authentically just because I grew up in a very diverse community, for example, or, you know, like I had a black boyfriend when I was in fifth grade. Does that make me an authority? No, it does not. I was writing about my own culture in this novel, but because I haven't been a black person, I needed to find out what it's like to be black in America today. So I watched lots of personal accounts. I read lots of personal accounts. I made sure that I wasn't just reading summaries of what some expert thought that it was like, but actual accounts from the people who live these lives in America today. And then do what every novelist has to do, and that is just to represent every character authentically and not to create stereotypes. You know, just look out for the the landmines that white authors have found themselves stepping on in the past and try very hard to, to not make those for myself. And then ultimately to have sensitivity readers make sure that I hadn't still screwed up, you know, inadvertently. One of the things that was so interesting to me about the situation with American Dirt was when I read the book, which was very early before publication, I did not see the problems, right? And you read it. Yeah, you? I didn't see yeah. the problems either. Right. And it's because we're not Mexican mm-hmm. or Mexican-American. We, we can't see, we can't know what we don't know. But I think we have to respect the opinions of people who do know and get those opinions early if we can so that we don't end up with a book that causes, you know, this complete, utter, I think, outsized controversy. Agreed. Well, I think the note was great. And- <laughs> <laughs> that was a really long answer to your question. <laughs> 
you do write from a lot of different characters' perspectives, but you also adopt this universal we from the people in the neighborhood, which I found to be really interesting and a different convention than I've seen in other books. So tell me about that decision. Right. So that's the collective first person from the writer standpoint. That's a, a storytelling choice that is not made very often because it doesn't really suit stories generally. But in this case, I was really interested in the fact that this was going to be a cautionary tale. And usually we choose between two points of view, right? We have first person point of view where we're hearing directly from the character or we have third-person point of view where it's like the author voice telling the story through the character's point of view. And the collective first person lets me kind of have the best of both worlds. It gives this intimate look at the community because the the we is the, the neighborhood mm-hmm. telling the story. But it also lets me have that voice disappear and just share what the characters' experiences are. And it, it goes way back to the beginning of the really the history of storytelling, which was an oral event, right, mm-hmm. originally. And then like classic literature where we have Shakespeare, for example, having a narrator introduce to the audience the story that they're about to see performed on the stage. And so it just felt like the right choice. And I didn't know if I could pull it off because I'd never done it before, but I guess I guess it worked. It worked for me. <laughs> I thought it was neat. It's it's nice when things are a little bit different. I don't know. I read a lot of books, and it's nice to have yes, something different. Yes, you do read a lot of books. <laughs> no, it's just nice when th- something's a little different. I mean, as long as it's done well, it's it's nice. It's like somebody's thought through something a little differently. I don't know. So one part of the book that I found particularly interesting was that Julia, the mom, had children by two different dads and in very, very different stages of her life. Right. And I know that we always say with kids, like, well, I'm a different mom to— you know, my five-year-old than I was to my almost 13-year-old. I'm like a totally different person. And that's true. But this really is like she was <laughs> like a different person. She had a different really you know, is, yeah. financial situation, a different lifestyle, a different relationship with the guy. A diff- every Everything in her life was different. And ultimately, the step-parent relationship and all of that becomes a very central piece of the plot. Yep. Tell me about your decision to, to do that. And then it made me wonder, like, do you have any stepchildren of your own? Like, have are you close to any families who are half, like the half-brother, half-sister relationship is sort of underexplored. So that was a hmm, long question. It's true. It's true. I don't, I don't have any half-siblings, but I did have a whole bunch of step-siblings mm-hmm. when I was growing up. And well, Julia... Julie and I have some things in common. Fortunately, not the teenage, unmarried, pregnant part <laughs> of her life. But I got married really young, and I I had kids young, and then what, what I do remarried. We mean, what do we mean by young? Like how young? Oh God, I was eighteen. Really? When I got married? Yes, right out of high school. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. Bad, bad decision, and not a shotgun wedding. You know, it, it was not. It was not one of those situations. I was just determined and stubborn and thought I knew what I was doing. So I I got married young. I had my kids when I was in my mid-20s, and then I was divorced when I was 30. And it was really a hand-to-mouth life a lot of that time. Like Even growing up, I came from a a blue-collar family. We did not have much in life, and I was sort of always striving and so that helped me a lot with Julia's character, this you know young woman who was not educated and who had a child quite young and who just wanted to do better and be better, and not just for herself, but for this daughter that she had when she was just 19 years old. 
So that helped me really get into the space of Julia's head. And then the whole having a step-parent thing was something that I personally had plenty of experience with and a lot of bad experience, although not exactly what Juniper has in the story. But there is an aspect of my life where a person in my life behaved that way toward me. Fortunately, it wasn't my stepdad. And we don't want to give too much away about any of that for the book. But all of these things informed the story and informed Julia and this parenthood situation where Juniper was born when she was a struggling single mom. And then Lily is born 10 years later when she has married well and lives this much more comfortable life was something that I thought a lot about because of the guilt that mothers sort of have built into them anyway. And then to think about what the younger child has versus what the older child had to deal with. Um, I just, it just felt really emotionally heavy, mm-hmm. right? But in a good way right? that I could identify with. And I hope a lot of readers can identify with, but not too many in the, <laughs> or in the right ways. <laughs> can you just, now I'm really curious about your life. So you got married when you were 18, you had I kids did. in your twenties and now, right. and now you've written all these amazing books. And by the way, I read Z, a novel oh. of Zelda Fitzgerald while I was nursing my did third you? child. And it will like forever be, you know, like stuck in my brain because I had it propped up by the pump. And like, <laughs> like it was like my go-to book for that whole period of time. And it makes me think about just like the agony and the, oh, oh my that's gosh. so interesting. Anyway, that, an was association, my, huh? that was my escape. You were completely my escape. And now here you are years later. But anyway, anyway, so how did you go from that to becoming like a best-selling novelist? Oh, well, it was easy. No, it was so not easy. Oh, gosh, that's a kind of a long and tangled pathway. But when I got divorced at 30, I put myself back in college. I'd, I'd taken some classes when I was like 20 years old, but I didn't get very far with it. And I went back to school at 30 to finish my degree. I got a degree in sociology and cultural anthropology. And I really thought that that was going to be my path. I thought that I would just spend these these three and a half years in school. Like I had to pay for everything with scholarships and I, I, I sold cars at CarMax part-time. That was my job. And it was just this cobbling together of finances and schedules and everything just to, to get to a place where I would be able to just be a better provider myself. I didn't want to have to be like Julia and Mary into to money in order to support my kids. So I was in my last semester of undergrad, and I took this class. It was a lit class in which I was given the choice to either write a short story or do a 20-page research paper for the final project for that class. And this will sound like a, a brag. I guess this is a brag, but I was on track to graduate first in my class, and I really, really did not want to screw that up. So I chose to write a short story thinking this will be much easier and take a lot less time than doing the research paper. And it was just a completely practical decision. But when I turned that story in, the feedback I got from my professor, who was himself a writer, and jump forward a second, and 15 years later, I married him. No. We, <laughs> I Seriously? Did, I did, 15 years later. But at that time, he was just the professor who also was a writer and who told me that I had some promise as a fiction writer. And it was as if, you know, my fairy godfather had come and, and waved the wand over my head and said, if you want to be a writer, you know, 
why don't you give it a try? And so I did. I just completely changed course and I started writing. And instead of going to grad school for a PhD in sociology, I went to grad school for an MFA, but not, I wrote a bad novel first, right? That was in between <laughs> those two paths. But, you know, you fail forward, I guess, is, is the path. And so every, every time I didn't get published made me just want to try harder and do better and that's been sort of the path of my career. Try to try to do less bad each book <laughs> until you have a success. Wow. You're I think you're the first person who has said I went into writing to give myself a state of financial security. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's astonishing to me that it actually worked out that way. It didn't go quickly, you know, but my first published book paid well enough that, that I could keep writing. It's amazing. It was a miracle. And then you ended up marrying the guy? How did that happen? Oh, you gosh, just... that was after Z was published. And, you know, so let's see, that was 13 years after that semester that I'd taken his class. And I'd known him, you know, all throughout there. He actually taught in the, in the um, MFA program that I took, right? So we'd been friends for a long time. But we were not friends that way until after we reconnected in 2013. And it was really strange, but it was really great because suddenly we like recognized we had this thing that we did not know was going on. Right. It wasn't going on, but we sort of in retrospect said, well, you know, we did always really like each other. It just was very different. And are you still married? Oh, yes, we're still married. Oh, good. Okay, great. (laughs) It's only been a few years. Well, you never know. I mean, you never know. No, you you absolutely don't. Well, that's a great story. I love that. Yeah, we went way off track here. Yeah, I love this track. This is so fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tell me about how, like, the process. You got your MFA. When you sit down now to write your books, what, what is it like? And has it changed from your first book? Like, do you have a way you like to write? Do you outline these stories? I know this, they're usually historical fiction, but just how, to, yeah. how what's your process like? I have to get really like inspired by or excited about something first. So I have lots of ideas. And then I spend a lot of time with a writing journal just figuring out, is this actually a worthy idea? Is this an idea that is just an idea and not a novel? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some things have a great premise, but then when you try to work them out, you realize like, no, that that's at best, you know, an article. Mm-hmm. But once I've decided on what I'm going to do, if it's a historical novel or something that just takes a lot of research, then I'll spend, I don't know, as much time as I can stand digging into all of the, the depths of information about, well, whether it's the Fitzgeralds or, you know, I wrote about the Vanderbilts in my most recent novel. And then I just sit down and I get to work. So I write full time which means that that's really all I do and it's all I should be doing instead of like being on Facebook for two hours in the morning. And I treat it like a job and I just like have a word count goal, usually 1,500 or 2,000 words a day and I just move forward. So I don't believe in writer's block. I just believe that writers are sometimes not prepared. So I just try to make sure I'm prepared to do the work. I love it. I love writing so much. But yeah, I usually have a kind of like burning need to tell this particular story. So you talked about reading Z. That came about because I got angry about how badly misrepresented Zelda is or was. I hope not so much now that I have published that book, but it certainly was before. 
And I just felt like, dang it, I'm going to try to set the record straight on this. So A Good Neighborhood kind of was born similarly because it started with this oak tree in my own backyard, right? So because the oak tree is such a big element in this novel, maybe that is apparent that I have a personal connection to that. I had real anxiety over this tree in my own backyard because next door to our house was this old house that had been torn down and a new house had been built and the driveway had been poured so that it went all the way down the property line and was totally like half the tree's roots had been covered by this garage and this driveway. And and it didn't show, the problem didn't show immediately, but I had the kind of anxiety that Valerie comes to have in the novel, which is like, oh, damn, my tree is maybe dying. And then at the same time that all that was going on was this, what what would we call the culture these days, kind of this toxic culture of this resurgence of like white supremacy and sexism and environmental degradation, all these things that I thought were solved when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s seemed like all this progress was backsliding. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I have things to say about this. What do I do with all this anxiety? So it wasn't like a conscious decision of, oh, I'll write a book about it. No, it was more like the characters start making themselves known to you in your in your mind and then you start writing and i had a lot of anxiety too over whether my publisher would be happy with the fact that i was not doing an historical novel again but i just had to i had to do it and see what happened wow and has anything gripped you since then are you working on anything else i am working on something else but it's it's a little too it's a little too fresh to talk about it publicly. Okay. So when we hang up, will you whisper it to me? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's okay. Okay. Can you can you say is it historical fiction or not? Can you? Oh, say that? it is. It is not historical fiction. No. Okay. All right. I won't ask you anymore. We'll play like twenty okay. questions. We'll <laughs> be like with my kids. <laughs> is it about a boy? Is it about a girl? No, I'm kidding. It's always about a boy and a girl. Isn't yeah. It? Every yeah. story is about a boy and a girl. <laughs> Just curious, by the way, is, has your book been optioned yet? It's it seems like such a movie material. A Good Neighborhood is, it's out with people, but no takers so far. Right. If you're listening, Hollywood people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a terrific film agent, so I'm, I'm sure she's putting it into lots of people's hands. Oh, good. Well, it's very visual. Anyway, just to read it is so visual. It's like you. It's great. Thanks. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Oh, yeah. You know, find a, a job that, you know, you can count on. <laughs> You should probably not leave that in the podcast. No, for real, the best advice that I think I could give anybody is, well, it's kind of two things. Don't try to be the best. Just try to be good enough and to persevere because the biggest difference between the successful author and the unsuccessful author is perseverance. That's my advice. That seems so easy, right, from my side of it. But when (laughs) I look back on the career that I've had so far, like, honestly, just trying to write well enough to be published. That's a big deal all by itself. And then not giving up when the rejections come because the rejections always come. Mm-hmm. Okay, can I even, oh, Yeah, I mean, even when you're well-published, if you are changing publishers for some reason, for example, and you have to go back out on submission with your book, you're going to get rejected. Every successful book I know of had lots of rejections. 
right? Did you read Water for Elephants? Uh, no, I'm embarrassed to say. I have it, but I have not read it. All right, we won't tell Sarah Gruen that you haven't read it yet. Yeah, thank but you. But most people know about what a success story that was, but a lot of people don't know that Sarah's original publisher rejected that novel, and that's why Algonquin ended up publishing it. So oh, interesting. Writers should be aware. Mitch Album told me when he was on my show that Tuesdays with Maury got rejected like 80 times. Well, there you go. Oh, and The Help is another example of a novel that was widely rejected. Yeah, so never we, all have, we all have those stories. Z was rejected, actually. So, Can I ask you one more question, which is really random, but tell me about your, okay. tell me about your nose ring, because I don't often see oh. that. What do you want to know about it? Like, when, when did you get it? How long have you had it? I don't remember. Long time? Ten years? Ten years, maybe? Wait, you have to see something else, actually. This is people so, in the oh listening. My gosh. Well, people see this. So we are on mm-hmm. Skype, by the way, for people listening. And I am now looking at the most incredible oh. tattoo situation. <laughs> this is a multicolor <laughs> extravaganza going up and down her arm. We have some sort of flower heart yep. swirly business no, no on hearts, her shoulders. Just flowers. <laughs> I felt like the the like, sort of heart shape on the edges. Okay. That's, uh, okay. No. Swirly. 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 Yeah. Wow. Swirly. People will be like, what is going on in this podcast? And I have... Oh, we've got a Z on her neck, which is great. A Z on my neck. That's it. That's the sum total of all of my ink. So yeah, I I have a pierced nose and I have tattoos. All right. Things people would not have known about me until now. Aren't you glad we turned the video (laughs) portion on? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, there you go. You never know what you'll learn when you turn on the camera. Go on podcasts, talk about tattoos. I think this is a, a good practice, actually. Yeah, maybe this should be your podcast. <laughs> the t- Tattoo Artist Talks or something. I don't I'm know, fascinated something. by tattoos, and I haven't written about them at all yet. So maybe that's to come. Yes. Do you have any? I do not. No? I've been nope. scared by the whole, like, I'm Jewish, and they won't bury you if you have a tattoo type of thing. Well, I understand that. My my mom's side of the family were we are Jews on my mom's side and my uncle has a tattoo and he gets that a lot. And he just kind of like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Not worried um, about it. Well, that's really, I mean, that's part of it. I, I just, I'm so indecisive. I feel like I would change my mind and <laughs> yes. <laughs> be well, like, wait, 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 no, one. I want something else. I don't know how old you are, but I got my first tattoo when I was 41. Wow. I think. I'm 43. So, all right. Wow. So it's late, just about my summer. time. <laughs> I got a guy. I can tell you where to go. Oh, great. Okay. Well, I'll call you if I need it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It's been a pleasure, Zibby. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks again to Good Pods for sponsoring this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.